Once upon a time, three movie fans went to college and took film classes. After graduating, they were each hired for very boring day jobs. But I took them away from all that, and now they podcast for me. My name is Charlie. Good morning, morning, Charlie. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. This is going to be long, hard, and rough. Sometimes when it's rough, I just get there fast. Listener discretion is advised. When we get started this millennium... Discussing Charlie's Angels, starring Kate Jackson, Farrah Fawcett, Jacqueline Smith, David Ogden Steers, David Doyle, directed by John Llewellyn Moxie. This is the now playing co host who no one sees, I'm a very private person, Arnie. This is Marjorie. And this is Jacob, the co-host who lives in a barn down by the river. <laughs> um, you got the wrong cast list. Where's Lucy Liu, Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore? We're covering that on the next show of the Charlie's Angels retrospective series that we're doing. It's actually in two weeks because we have a theatrical release next week. But welcome to the Charlie's Angels retrospective series. It's getting its fourth or sixth, depending on how you want to count it, incarnation in a new movie coming out in late October. And when we were discussing doing Charlie's Angels, I was like, there is no way you can talk about Charlie's Angels without talking about Farrah Fawcett. No, you cannot do that. And so I did my research and lucky enough, while Charlie's Angels started in 1977, in March of 1976 as a two hour movie of the week came this pilot. It Fits our rules. Yeah, lucky enough, I'm putting that in finger quotes. Back to TV pilots. Okay. I get it. The incarnations that came to the screen are much, much later, and why not talk about the original? I kind of feel you have to. Its shadow looms large, and I don't know that when they're doing this 2019 remake that people are really thinking Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore, Lucy Liu... They're thinking of the TV series that has resided in syndication for over 40 years. MeTV is great for some stuff like that. I think that the people that would be seeing this movie, though, would be thinking of Cameron Diaz and Drew and Lucy Liu because, I mean, those movies came out in the early 2000s, so like 20 years ago almost for the first one, so they were probably little kids, and that's their Charlie's Angels. Well, what is your Charlie's Angels, Marjorie? Why are you joining us on this retrospective? Well, I'm a girl, first of all. Admittedly, it helps the optics. It does, yes. (laughs) But I did watch the Charlie's Angels TV show when I was a little kid. I had a super awesome sparkly iron-on shirt. I was too young to see it in its original run, and I'm fairly certain my memories of it are in syndication. I remember having the Kenner dolls also, and I don't remember if this was my mom's doing or my doing because I was too young when the show came out to think I wanted that. But I do remember a Farrah Fawcett doll and the hair, and it never stayed feathered. But I think the new movies are guilty pleasure, too. I mean, they're stupid fun. It is kind of cool to see girl action stars and not be pandered to. They still got the jiggle for you guys, but they made them smart and strong. Yeah, it's a stupid guilty pleasure. And I grew up with Charlie's Angels also in syndication. I might have watched some of this first run because I was definitely watching... TV action shows in the late 70s and early 80s. I have vivid memories of watching first-run Dukes of Hazard and first-run Incredible Hulk. I might have seen some first-run Charlie's Angels. I remember my favorite angel was always the blonde because she used her wrist as a way to steady her pistol, and I'd never seen anybody in any show rest a pistol on their wrist, and I thought that was so badass. Now I think it's a good way to get a wrist injury. And I think you're the only male that watched the blonde to see how she used her wrist to hold a gun. That is correct. I was prepubescent. I'm talking I was six, seven, eight. I specifically remember a Thanksgiving in 
1983, I think it was, maybe 84, where I was so engrossed in a double episode of Charlie's Angels that was airing in syndication where it was taking place at an ice rink or something. I had to know who the killer was. I could not tear myself away. And so I got in an argument with my mother. No, I don't want to come to Thanksgiving dinner, which is in the next room. I need to finish Charlie's (laughs) Angels, damn it. By the way, this behavior carries on into his adulthood. FYI. (laughs) But then I kind of lost touch with Charlie's Angels, I got to admit. it's If it came on, maybe I'd watch one in the intervening 20 years. Yeah, this is one, I have memories of it, definitely remember the theme song for it, remember the outline of the poses of the three women, like one doing the kung fu and the other two with guns facing in the three different directions. I couldn't tell you a whole lot more than those memories, I I probably have more memories of the 2000 Charlie's Angels than this TV show, but it is definitely something I watch. It is funny though, I found out my wife, she should probably be on the show, apparently she's a super fan of the TV show, like she found out I was watching a TV pilot, and she's like, oh no, I don't want to watch that and I'm like it's Charlie's Angels and she got super excited started telling me about the lunchbox that she had and knows the history all the different blondes that they employed and these actresses so that was fun seeing her actually get super excited about something that I had to watch for now playing for once it doesn't always happen but yes she was way more excited for this TV show than for the 2000 films that we'll be discussing eventually but again a passing familiarity for me it's something I watched a few times in my childhood I I could tell you some of the basics. I couldn't get real deep into it. Well, this show, like I say, it started in 77. This pilot aired in 76. There's a couple different stories about how it came to be. If you hear Aaron Spelling's side of the story, men were just too much a part of television. Hawaii Five-0 was one of the number one shows, and all the shows were too serious. He thought it was time for a female-led, fun TV show. Is this his 2000s spin on it to appeal to the feminists? Maybe, but if you look back at it, actually, I took a look at old TV ratings because I knew this wasn't the first. This wasn't the groundbreaking show. And no, in 1975, when they were coming up with this idea, Bionic Woman was the fifth rated television show on TV. There were higher rated male procedurals, but... Bionic Woman was outperforming the $6 million man in the ratings at this point. And then, if you go beyond action, Rhoda, One Day at a Time, Mary Tyler Moore, these are all top 20 TV shows. So I think what they were doing is hopping on the zeitgeist of, it's time to let the females run the show. If you think about the late 70s, that was a real time of female empowerment. The abbreviation Ms. came out versus Miss or Mrs., This whole time was a really neat time for women because you had things like One Day at a Time and Alice on TV that were groundbreaking shows. I mean, to show a divorced woman on television, do you know how scandalous that was? What about Mrs. Brady? But that was different. She remarried. (laughs) Okay. But it was very scandalous to show a single divorced woman one day at a time, and it was very scandalous for her to date process that. I was too young to realize the... I, In fact, I only saw One Day at a Time in reruns, so I didn't get it. But it was a time for women where we weren't taking it anymore. Big deal for us. Give us some credit. So I think that when this was pitched to Spelling, he saw it as a way to ride the wave. He was already a successful television producer. Yeah, a way to cash in on the wave. He wasn't saying, yay, ladies, let's do this. He's like, oh, I could cash in on the ladies, let's do this. Yeah, and he was already a successful television producer, and this wasn't his idea. Ivan Jeff and Ben Roberts, they were the ones who took the idea to Spelling Goldberg Productions. They'd been making shows like Mod Squad, Dynasty, Fantasy Island, so kind of a silly, cheesy show. Like, again, Love Boat was his. This matched his sensibility, and so they decided to do it. It was the concept that there would be three cops. And they were going to call it the Alley Cats. It was going to be three girls, one named Allie, Lee, and Catherine. Get it? Alley Cats? Well, that's Allie Lee Cats. <laughs> <laughs> and they just tried to pitch it, and the head of ABC was like, this is the worst idea I ever heard. And so spelling continued, but he'd also been producing a show I've never heard of called The Rookies. Nope. It was a cop show, and Kate Jackson had a supporting role on it, but she got the most fan mail of anyone in the entire show. 
And so Spelling brought her in, said, I think your star's on the rise. Even though the network said, no, I want to attach you to the show. And Kate Jackson's like, yeah, but cops, that's a stupid idea. Why don't we become private investigators? That's much more cool. And Alley Cats, that has a terrible intonation. It does, yes. So she was the one who's like, why aren't we angels? Because Aaron Spelling had a speaker box, which to me in the 70s was like the height of technology. Yes, that was the coolest thing. That was as cool as a iPhone or, or whatever's cool today. I guess iPhones aren't even that cool anymore. But yes, that was like the most amazing thing to see as a child. Seriously, when I was a kid, the speaker box attached to a telephone was as cool as Tony Stark's tech is today when he gets <laughs> yes. a swipe from his phone to a television. <laughs> yes, yeah. it was the ultimate in coolness. In fact, I remember my dad office in the early 80s he had one of those because it was cool yeah so Aaron Spelling used one of those all the time Kate Jackson sitting in his office was like why doesn't our boss talk to us through a speaker and so we never see him they ended up pitching it again and the network was like who's going to believe this who's going to buy three women as investigators and on the spot Aaron Spelling made up the opening monologue, a, a version of it where he's like, well, we're going to show that they were in the police academy and got menial jobs. One's a crossing guard, one's a secretary. And then they were taken out of that and work for a private investigator. Network was like, well, all right, but who's going to save them? What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, who's going to save them? They're women. The network insisted that there be another character who can come in and save the girls. Is that why Tommy Lee Jones is here? No, David <laughs> Ogden Stiers. Well, you know, he, having a heart attack or something, I guess he could help you. This was pre-MASH. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't realize MASH was that late. Yeah, I know. It, it takes place in Korea. You think it was shot in Korea, right? <laughs> I mean, I do. But they decide to bring him in. As the male investigator superior who could come in and save the women when they get in over their heads. And does this character last? Because, you know, Bosley, I remember the speaker box. I don't remember another dude who came in and helped him out like this. He only made it through the pilot. And then finally, Aaron Spelling was like, look. Look at what's going on here. The girls can save themselves. And when this pilot aired that we're about to discuss, it broke ratings records. ABC had tested it. It was horrible testing. The critics lambasted it, saying it was jiggle TV. That is one of my notes is, did this show get jigglier? Because my memory would be, my assumption would be, lots of jiggle. I didn't find it in this one. Yeah, it, it gets jigglier. And the network even didn't promote it very much. Yet the first time it aired, it got a almost 55 share. That means of every television in the United States in 1976, over half of them were watching this one show. Now, admittedly, there were like three networks back then. <laughs> so if you're breaking average, you're hitting 33%. But the ratings were so high, the network actually didn't believe it. So they re-ran it one week later, and the ratings were almost as high. So they're like, all right, you got it. You got a series. Aaron, you've got creative control. Do what you need to do, and we'll go from there. But the show didn't last long, did it? Just a couple seasons? Five years. Okay, five years. That's a pretty good run then. I know there was casting troubles. Everyone in the cast list here, all the angels didn't make it all five years. One of them did. It was Jacqueline Smith. Jacqueline Smith and David Doyle. Neither one of them had anything else to do. <laughs> yeah, but the most famous one, Farrah Fawcett, she was only around for a year. Yeah, one year only. She was hired here after working on Logan's Run. Kate Jackson was the first. Farrah Fawcett was the second. Hundreds of people tried out for the third role. They just saw hundreds and hundreds of girls. They wanted a redhead. They wanted to have a blonde, a brunette, and a redhead. Yeah, it's two brunettes. makes it tricky doing my notes when I'm not that familiar with these. I'm like, <laughs> I got to have one of each. Well, they decided to go with the better actress instead of the redhead. Although, to hear Kate Jackson tell it, reporters would say, which angel are you? And Kate Jackson would go, I'm the one who can act. <laughs> you know she might be onto something my wife kept referring to her oh that's the ugly one <laughs> so now the other two just need to look good i guess but she had to act well the other two as the season went on 
really got into the fashion. This was a low-budget show, but its number one expense was not its cast, was not its action. It was its fashion. They brought in fashion designers. They'd send the girls to Rodeo Drive to find their outfits for the next show. They wanted these girls to look sleek, fashionable, and sexy. Mixed messages with that girl power there. (laughs) Well, the most important fashion thing to come out of this TV show, the entire thing, is Farrah hair. Everyone had feathered hair. Men, women, dogs, (laughs) everybody. I mean, it was way more popular than the Rachel that assaulted us in the late 90s. It is funny. I watched a documentary that had like an old lady, a young girl, and a middle-aged woman all getting fairer hair at a salon. Yeah, I totally know what fair hair means. I was actually shocked at one point in this pilot. She's going to go underwater. I'm like, she actually got her hair wet because every time they pull off a helmet or a wig or a hat, like that hair is perfect, ready to flip and already feathered. I'm like, I was shocked that she'd actually let her hair get wet during this. Yeah, her hair is like perfect all the time. So are those teeth. I I don't buy those teeth on a hillbilly, but we'll talk about it. (laughs) No. (laughs) She was in teeth whitening ads, one of the first ones. She was known as the toothy one, and there was Jacqueline Smith was the one, ironically, with the hair because she had been a shampoo commercial. Well, enough about the commercials they starred in. How about we talk about this pilot? Arnie, give us a plot. In the mid-70s, three women graduated the police academy but were given menial jobs. Those three are Sabrina Duncan, played by Kate Jackson, Jill Monroe, played by Farrah Fawcett Majors, and Kelly Garrett, played by Jacqueline Smith. They were recruited by the mysterious Charlie Townsend to work at his PI firm. There, they're managed by John Bosley, played by David Doyle, and Scott Woodville, played by David Ogden Steers. Charlie gives them their case for the week. Seven years earlier, rich vineyard owner Vincent Lemaire disappeared, presumed murdered, Now his estate is about to go to his alcoholic second wife, Rachel, played by Diana Mulder. Rachel aided and abetted by truck driver, now vineyard manager, Bo Creel, played by Bo Hopkins. The mysterious client hires the angels to prove Bo and Rachel murdered Vincent and stop them from getting the vineyard. First, Sabrina goes undercover as Janet Lemire, the grown-up daughter from Vincent's first marriage. She fools those at the vineyard, but is outed due to an unexpected meeting with Janet's childhood friend, Aram, played by Tommy Lee Jones. Then Sabrina tells Rachel she's there to get the vineyard, which is worth millions. She partners with them to steal the vineyard from the, quote, real, unquote, Jill, who's actually Kelly undercover. They convince Rachel and Bo there's oil in the vineyard swamp, and they prepare to buy the swamp from a local redneck, Jill Monroe in disguise. Bo goes to the swamp to recover Vincent's body, lest it be found while drilling for oil. This act proves Bo and Rachel killed Vincent, and he's captured by the angels, aided by Aram and the local sheriff. With them arrested, it's revealed the client was the real Janet, who's now dating childhood friend Aram, as the angels await their next case, and credits roll. And I have to say, I'm shocked and slightly disappointed, because when dealing with the TV movie, I thought for sure we were going to see the opening credits expanded. We were going to see them graduate from the police academy and see them recruited by Charlie and see the first case. I mean, the first episode of The Incredible Hulk had David Banner getting irradiated and the first episode of Knight Rider had him shot in the face and plastic surgery reconstructed to Michael Knight and get the car. It's not like they just started with Michael Knight was shot in the face and has a talking car. This is Knight Rider. Yeah, that was a bit of a shock to me, too, is that the opening credits is the backstory. And my memory was, did they work for the FBI, the CIA, private detectives? I guess they're private detectives. It's not really told you here. Who are these three women? I don't know. They're not going to give you names. You're going to just have to catch them throughout the film. I would think a, a pilot movie, you want to establish all of this early on so you know who these characters are, so you want to come back week after week after week. And no, we're going to sit down and just get the case. This is a very bold pilot, I thought, because of all the lacking information. And they just jumped headfirst into this giant murder mystery. But at the same time, it also showed you what the show was going to be about, minus the jiggle, because we didn't get much jiggle. But it shows them going undercover, working with Bosley. Bosley's part of their stuff, although he never has a good cover. So, and I think later in other episodes, we do get more explanation as to their past. Because they are just private detectives, right? Like, you could just go hire the angels. I assume so, but here's my question. Charlie, is he the salesman? Because 
rarely do they do any like, oh, hey, this person needs our help. It's always people go to Charlie. So Charlie must have some sort of thing where people know to contact him or how to. And they just sit around waiting for his call like a bad boyfriend who only calls you at 2 a.m. when he's drunk. (laughs) (laughs) I do like the opening where we get to see Sabrina riding a horse, getting that phone call, having to go into the agency. And... The most we're going to get out of this is I guess Kelly is going to be a health food nut making some kind of smoothie and she gives one to Jill and Jill's like, are you trying to make me fat? No, I'm trying to make you healthy. That's all the character development we get because this is all about the case. They're going to be undercover. We're not going to get to know these girls. One of the things they will change later on is trying to make them a bit more distinct because in this pilot episode, any one of them could have done, I think, any of the jobs here. Yeah, that was another question of mine. I would assume you have a team, you have the explosives expert and the person that's good with vehicles and someone that's good with guns. I don't know if that was developed later on, but that is also lacking here. I thought, you know, you go more of that specialist route and that's why you have these three women. They did go that way a little bit. Notice they didn't even shoot. They never use guns in this. So the original conception would be the women did it with their wits. But by the time it went to series, that's when you got that. There is a silhouette here that shows just the three women standing in pantsuits. Uh, no, the silhouette confused me because the two on the left and the right, they're either wearing very tight cat suits or they're naked. You can see outlines <laughs> of their feet. The one in the middle, I'm like, what is wrong with that? I actually had a pause. It's because she's wearing these like knee-high boots that flare out. I'm like, the other ones don't have knee-high boots. The other ones are naked. This one's walking around with these weird boots that make her body look weird in this badly drawn outline. But the iconic outline would be used in the series where you have one with like the sniper rifle yes Farrah Fawcett with the pistol on the wrist and then Jacqueline Smith with the kung fu hands on the playground as a little girl we often did that playing like we do the Charlie's Angels pose they became action stars later on and different degrees of skill but yeah here in the pilot They're three pretty faces that are hired by a voice box, and I don't know if Spelling did this on purpose, but to me, it was very confusing that there was Bosley and Scott Woodville. I'm like, all right, if Scott is their boss, what's Bosley doing? What is his role here? Bosley, uh, he's kind of just likable because he's the dumpy looking one in the group. You know, you're hanging out with these three gorgeous ladies and then you have this middle-aged man. He looks kind of short and overweight. Automatically, it just makes him kind of lovable to me. I think he's just kind of there to add some testosterone because they couldn't have a woman in that role. You see Bosley? I don't know how much testosterone he's bringing. (laughs) That's true. But I don't think they could have put a woman in that role or had the three women on their own just talking to Charlie on the squawk box. I don't think people would buy that in the 70s. You know what I mean? Yeah, I just think that if they wanted a man to rescue them, they would have cut Bosley and left Scott as their boss who would also go go out there. Maybe it's because I know the series very well, but I felt like Bosley, in this case, was the one that was clumsily inserted. When the show got on its feet, they get rid of David Ogden Steers, then I think it's a little bit more delineated. Bosley is the operations manager and Charlie's the owner who brings them their cases. And here we get the case with a slideshow. (laughs) It's just so retro. And Bosley, his job is to try to operate the slides and he's not even good at that. (laughs) I wonder why they always had these like weird photos of people that are like stalking. These photos are weird. I mean, if I was going to go to some detective agency and provide a dossier of things that they could use as tools and stuff, I don't know that I'd have at the ready slides, but I guess slides were big in the 70s, weren't they? But who is taking this picture of Rachel LaMare pouring <laughs> wine and drinking Getting it? drunk off her own wine. Yeah, who took that photo? These look like surveillance photos. Does Charlie have another detective agency that he sent in first? We could talk about what the case is, but the way it's delivered, it's so convoluted. Like, I don't even know what their mission is i get all the pieces okay there's a missing husband and a will and a missing child and land but what are they supposed to do and charlie's like i'm not even gonna tell you who our client is well it's either the dad or the daughter that have been missing like i can figure that out right now but by the end of this presentation i'm like what is their mission just to like get more info to get the rightful heir to this 
will to find the daughter. I don't even know, but a lot of information is given. I'm right there with you, because it is very confusing that Rachel is the second wife, but Janet is the daughter from the first wife. I'm like, oh, the first wife has to be the client. No, the first wife is dead. There's no mystery to that. I thought it was always the daughter. Did I miss something to not doubt it? They kind of raise suspicion if the husband is really dead. He's been missing for seven years. He's presumed dead. So I'm like, oh, maybe this is him getting back at the ex-wife or trying to kill him. Or obviously it's the daughter. Like those were my two main suspects for who hired the angels. When they first arrive at the vineyard and you meet Rachel and the truck driver is now the vineyard manager, didn't all kinds of red flags being thrown around? Oh, yeah. And when they said that the first wife was dead and that Vincent was presumed dead, I thought for sure that their client had to be this daughter who's been, quote unquote, missing. Yeah. But why does the daughter have to remain a mystery? You know, the daughter could have been like, all right, there's no barn by the river and just giving them actual help. They somehow find out all these details about this missing girl that she drank warm milk with nutmeg. That sounds gross. Yeah. Guys, have you ever had warm milk in TV and movies, they always talk about warm milk. And I tried it one time. I almost puked. It is the worst. I don't care if you put nutmeg on that. (laughs) Milk is the worst. I'm sorry. Listen, it's great. I love warm milk with a couple pumps of flavor and a few shots of espresso. (laughs) Well, yeah, then it's coffee. I agree. (laughs) But that she rode her bicycle to the lawyer's office on her seventh birthday. They know details. And that's why I assume that the daughter is the client eventually because they know way too much. They had to get this information from somewhere. But then why doesn't Janet? I think it would be more fun to see Janet and Bosley back at the office. You know, we're going to find out. The first one to go undercover is Sabrina. But Sabrina somehow smuggled in this ginormous walkie-talkie. That she keeps in a Kleenex box. Yes, it's hilarious. (laughs) But it's got this huge extendable antenna. But that was high tech for the time. Yeah, and I'm like, lock the door, lock yourself (laughs) in the bathroom. She's just so casual about just busting out this huge walkie-talkie. But I think it would be more fun to see real Janet and Bosley back at the office together. And Bosley's role is getting the information to the angels and asking Janet the right questions. And Janet doesn't know, but Janet has clues instead of just this leaving me head scratching as to why they know all of this. I feel like these two, Bo and Rachel, are so suspicious that this is the real Janet and it isn't. They bring in someone to ask all these specific questions. I'm like, there's no way she's going to know this. How does she know this? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And part of my problem for me with this pilot is that the angels are so perfect. Until the very like last five minutes where Bo and his group's going to get the upper hand. I'm just like, where's the danger here? I'm like, oh, she just knows everything about this kid. She knows everything that the lawyer who is apparently Janet's best friend when she was a child knows. And yeah, if there was something like where we had to see her stall to get a piece of information to answer a question, I just don't feel like... Of danger, and it can be fun. What you know, Ocean's Eleven is fun because you're watching very confident con men pull a con, but there's still like danger. There's Andy Garcia lurking around throughout that film, like you feel like it could go wrong. Here, they are angels, they're perfect until the very end. I think the danger is that their cover is going to be blown somehow. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones, a very, very young Tommy Lee Jones, <laughs> who Arnie didn't even recognize. How did you not recognize him? That unibrow? Like, in the <laughs> 70s, people loved hair, I guess. They're not going to fix that. Marjorie confused me because she rightly pointed out he looked like Javier Bardem straight out of No Country for Old Men. <laughs> yes, my wife made that joke too when he showed up. She's like, oh, he looks like Anton Sugar. <laughs> Yeah, you had the same haircut and everything. So I didn't immediately recognize it was the voice that tipped me off and then the smile. Well, it wasn't until, because he was kind of, came into the shot, he was kind of far away until they did the close up. I'm like, oh, that's Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, and I was like, no, it's, oh my God, it is. <laughs> I was more impressed with some of the other actors. Diana Muldar. I'm like, wow, they got Diana Muldar. Now, who the hell is Diana Muldar? Who's, yeah, who is, what obscure movie are you going to pull out, Wait, Arnie? Uh, yeah, I mean, what were they in? What are they from? And it's going to be like Critters or Solar yeah. Baby, something <laughs> yeah. awful. And I'm like, so did she get, not, you're worried she wouldn't get the time off from Walmart? What? She was the second doctor on Star Trek The Next Generation. Season two, they got rid of Beverly Crusher, feeling the May-December romance with Picard might be a little too age-gappy, so they fired that actress and brought in Diana Muldar to play Dr. Pulaski. 
And she was also Rosalind Shea, the cutthroat rainmaker for a couple seasons on L.A. Law, who has the most famous death. She literally fell down an elevator shaft because she wasn't looking where she was going and died. And you can't believe they got her? Well, looking at her career back then, she was known for doing single to couple episode guest spots on television, including the original Star Trek. So yeah, I might be a little (laughs) starstruck where it's not needed. Whereas the one who I guess I should have been impressed by, but wasn't, was Bo Hopkins. I didn't recognize him at all, even though I've seen Midnight Express and I've seen The Wild Bunch and I've seen American Graffiti. He's... In all those movies. Yeah, I've seen, I recently watched The Wild Bunch. I don't remember him. I just kept getting fake Steve McQueen vibe off of him. The guy mumbled the entire time, too. And you, I, like, laughed so hard when she goes, I can't even see your teeth when you smile. And I just said, you can't see his teeth the entire time because he can't enunciate. <laughs> But yeah, I I was just happy to see a couple actors who I knew would go on to do stuff like Tommy Lee Jones in this pilot. It added a little bit of credibility for me, I guess. (laughs) Because working actors in the 70s got a job? I mean, Arnie, if you ever go back and watch The Brady Bunch, Charlie's Angels, WKRP, any of those shows from the 70s, you are occasionally going to see your stars from the 80s and 90s. And I mean stars, not this Diana Moldar lady. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you'll see Tommy Lee Joneses. Yes. Yeah, I know. And Leonardo DiCaprio got his start on Growing Pains and Parenthood. I mean, I get it, yes. But I'm just saying I was able to identify these characters pretty quickly because I knew all of these actors when they got much older. So Sabrina goes undercover here as Janet and has all these answers. But yeah, Tommy Lee Jones is going to foul her up by asking innocuous questions about a a blood oath. (laughs) I mean, that seems like the lie, not the barn down by the river. But a blood oath feels a little strange for kids on a vineyard. Rachel and Bo aren't even going to mess around, though. They're going to murder her that night with poisoned milk. With nutmeg. Yeah, it seems very extreme, but I guess they killed the husband, and they're going to admit to, like, having killed the dad and where they buried him while Sabrina's pretending to be dead. (laughs) I thought that was the end of the case. I'm like, I thought she's going to pull out a tape recorder and go, okay, case solved. Let's go to the cops. (laughs) Yeah, she also, not so subtly, just smiles big at the camera like, got him, and I'm not really dead, even though the milk is empty. I'm like... Yeah, that's a little bold. They just walked out of the room. What if they come back to get the glass to wash it out so there's no evidence or something? But this entire plot just confuses me because I guess this was all the plan is that they would realize Sabrina is not the real Janet because the real Janet is now coming. And Sabrina has a story that I kidnapped the real Janet and gave her truth serum. And so the truth serum, she may recognize my voice. She never saw my face, but she told me this vineyard was worth millions. Yeah, Woodville's going to show up in the middle of the night. That's why they don't, I guess, take her body to go bury it because they got to go answer the door. And yeah, gives this crazy story like, no, the real Janet's here. And like, yeah, truth serum and all this stuff. This is such a convoluted plot. Yeah, it's very, very bizarre, but I think it was a slow way to introduce all the girls, even though we don't learn any specialization or anything like that, but we get each one doing a cover. My thinking is this is a way to draw this paper-thin story out to two hours. Now, there's a hell of a lot of commercials. When watching this without commercials, even with the commercial break silhouettes still there, it's 72 minutes, so that means there were 48 minutes of commercials. I'm guessing it's been a long time since you watched any 70s or 80s TV shows other than comedies. No, I watch The Incredible Hulk all the time. Okay, paper thin on those too. Heart to Heart is currently on all the time. Love that show as a little kid. But again, also paper thin mysteries. And you're like, why are they even doing this? It's just the way the storytelling was. Oh, I get it. This isn't something you were supposed to sit down like we did, pay 100% attention to, and take notes. You had your TV trays coming into fashion in the 70s. People would walk in and out of the room. They'd go take a bathroom break during commercials. They weren't giving this the attention they'd give it in a darkened theater. And so I think it had to be paper thin. But my reason for saying this one's especially thin is because it is a double 
episode, and it doesn't feel like the plot deserves this extra running time. Yeah, there's a lot of meandering in this. Even my wife, who's a super fan, by the end of this, she's like, uh, why is this so long? Like, Just make it a regular episode. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a pilot, and here's the trouble with judging a series by the pilot. It's usually one of the worst episodes. Yeah. The actors haven't developed their chemistry, the writers haven't figured out every detail of the formula, it's like judging a play by watching a rehearsal. And so here we are watching this where everybody's just getting their footing. And it's just very head scratching when, yes, Kelly comes in as the real Janet and Jill is her secretary. Assistant. And Scott is her lawyer and Bosley is a bird watching friend. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they're going to do a whole thing with the Iranians, with oil, like it gets crazy, this cover that they try to come up with. What I've always been taught, if you're going to lie, keep it simple. Yes. The more simple the lie, the more believable it is. The more you start going into convoluted details that you would never go into, like, where were you? I was at the store. Good lie. Where were you? Well, I was coming home and I saw this car get T-boned and I had to pull the guy out of the accident and there was a cat in the back seat and so I had to go back and the, get the cat. Bad lie. This is And we'll see the angels get tripped up by Tommy Lee Jones character Aram, one of the weirdest names I've ever heard, but apparently that's a name, who I guess travels on the most dangerous road in Central <laughs> California because he gets in an accident like two days in a row. It's a single lane apparently, but he does that. Like he talks about this story. Oh, I remember when we were in the bar down by the river and I broke my collarbone. I'm like, ah, oh, this is all fake and they're going to agree to it. He is the smartest person here and he has nothing invested in this plot. And he never actually uses his knowledge. He's the one who uncovers both angels and is like, I'm sick of meeting fake Janets. He does say that he doesn't like them, so whatever their plot is, he's cool with if, he, if they're going to take Rachel and Bo down. But yet he doesn't help either. It's not like he then goes to the house. He, he does at the end. Yeah, at the end when Charlie calls him, but it's not like he goes to the house and helps Janet sell the lie of, oh my god, my good friend Janet, it's really you. He doesn't care. Well, he wants to take down Bo and Rachel. He could just go get another job. Yeah, th I mean, they make some mention of, like, how ever since Bo and Rachel took over the vineyard, the townsfolk have really been suffering. I'm like, is, is this the only commerce? Like, this is the only job? Everyone's got to go pick grapes for Bo, and he, he's just an awful employer. It's ruined the whole town. I've done a drive through wine country in California, and if you, one vineyard fires you, there's another one up the next hill. Oh, there's so many vineyards, yes. Yeah, just go 50 feet down the road. Yeah, it's a whole thing, people, because Central California, it's right in the middle between San Francisco and L.A., so that's a popular destination. Go wine tasting all day, just hop from vineyard to vineyard. And are there a lot of swamps in wine country? <laughs> no, not as far as I know. There's no swamps. It's very beautiful countryside by the ocean. I don't know if you could have a swamp by the ocean. Yeah, it's quite dry. I just picture, like, they somehow think wine country's in the bayou. I'm expecting Adam Sandler's water boy to come walking up anytime with the swamps. And then Farrah Fawcett, the biggest star of all of Charlie's Angels, dare I say. I mean, her poster that came out around the same time as the series is still the best-selling poster of all time. She gets the least to do in this show, but yet she goes undercover twice. She's not only Janet 2's assistant, but then she's going to post as a swamp resident with Grandpa <laughs> Bosley, who's going to try to run Bo off her property with a big rifle when he's offering $100,000 to buy it. I love Bosley in the cabin, knitting or something, doing something else and like doing the grandpa voice. I love that little bit. Yeah, I just got so many logistical questions. So <laughs> Bo wants to get this land. He sold this to someone named Hawkins years ago because he wanted a new car or whatever reason they give. And now they believe this land that there's oil there because Bosley's pretended to be a bird watcher, but he's really testing the swamp for oil. So now Bo wants to buy this land back so they could get the oil from it. 
And Hawkins is gone now. Like, did Charlie pay this guy off so they could have the land now? Like, he's gone, and now it's Bosley. And, like, they're going to sign a deed and take money and keep that money. This is how they get their payment for this mission, which is crazy. Like, I can imagine <laughs> the call between Janet and Charlie go, look, we could bilk him out a, a quarter of a million by doing this probably illegal sale, and that's how I'll pay you guys. There are a lot of questions. Like, how are they still in business? Get a deposit up front? <laughs> like get a contract to pay for daily expenses. Not like grifting people out of their land. I think she keeps the vineyard because she says she's going to build a barn down by the river with Aram at the end, the real Janet. Yeah, I think that what happened was she kept it. They fell in love, rekindled romance that maybe was there previously. I don't know. They'd already shared blood. Might as well share other fluids. We don't know that that was true, though. That part was true. It was the barn by the river. I think maybe she wanted to just find the body. I don't know. I don't know what the mission is. <laughs> We're going to get to the end pretty quickly after all of this convolution where I guess Bo and Rachel confessing to murder wasn't enough because they think the oil is in the swamp. Bo is going to go and dig up Vincent's body, which has been there for seven years. Seven years? How is that not decomposed? That's like the thing I had. <laughs> the first thing I said is, um, there's not going to be anything left of the body, and I doubt that that plastic bag would even survive seven years. They pull out a full body. Like, I think there's flesh still on that skeleton. Well, if you notice, in part of it, you can kind of see, like, a shoulder bone and a clavicle. Like, maybe they threw, like, a skeleton in there, but there is way more in there than should be in there. Water decomposes bodies fast. I mean, three days in the water and you're going to be unidentifiable. And this is swamp water. Yeah. Like, there's Ooh. gross stuff in there. Does California swamps have gators? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know. They might because they don't exist. <laughs> now that they have the body exhumed from the swamp is when the angels are going to make their move and be captured. Make their move? You mean stand there and then you call into Woodville to have him call into the cops? With their giant walkie-talkies. Hey, Sabrina, <laughs> do you see him? I mean, they weren't quiet at all. And then they're wearing bright clothes. Why was Jill wearing a bright pink hat? And how did that hat stay dry <laughs> when she went in the swamp water? Well, they're angels. That's the power of her hair. <laughs> but calling into Woodville didn't do any good because... They're going to be rescued by the cops because the ABC exec said, hey, these women need to be rescued by men. But Charlie called Arnhem. He somehow knew Arnhem or knew about Arnhem, called him and said, call the cops right now. And so it's Arnhem who saved the day. Woodville did nothing. Bosley did nothing. No, Charlie did it all. While in a hot tub with a woman or in a steam shower with a woman. Hey, Charlie was a 70s swinger, okay? He apparently was having a grand old time while the angels were working hard. Did they ever reveal who Charlie was? Never. Mm -mm. Okay, I, I figure it's just Aaron Spelling. Like, that, that's just his ego. No, the actor is John Forsyth. Yeah, I, I know they had an actor for the voice. But we never see Charlie's face. They never meet Charlie. And Forsyth is going to continue that role in the 2000s movies. Well, not in the new one, because he's dead. I said the 2000s, not the 2019s. This is the 2000s. Eh, no, this is the 21st century. This is the 2020s. We're almost in. Or the 2010s, I guess. We're ending. But then we get our denouement back at the office. Hey, guess what? You know how you all figured it was Janet who hired us? Janet hired us, and now she's dating Aram. <laughs> because wherever she's been for the last seven years or however long, she's now ready to move back to the swamp vineyard and... Get back together with her old beau. I guess her rich life in mystery land wasn't very fulfilling. I gotta wonder if she hired lots of other PIs to pull this case off, and it's only the angels could do it. Because, yeah, why wait around seven years? Well, you know, she got tired of living in, like, Paris and all those fabulous places and <laughs> wanted to move back to swamps in California. So, let's solve this mystery. Marjorie, Jacob, do you recommend Charlie's Angels, the TV pilot? Marjorie. You know, if you're going to watch it as a standalone, I'm probably going to say no, but I would say if you're looking for something fun, stupid, historically relevant when it comes to television, it might be worth binging Charlie's Angels just for the hell of it. It, it was a great 70s era show. It was very typical of the 70s as far as style of storytelling, 
amazing fashion. It was one of the first shows to feature women doing something other than cooking and wearing pearls and using a vacuum. So yeah, I'm going to say I recommend it, but I say you got to watch it all. You can't just watch the pilot because you're going to be like, this is ridiculous. But yes, I recommend it. Jacob. Yeah, talk about amazing fashion. At one point, Sabrina walks in with leather bell bottoms. That blew my mind. <laughs> like, I did not know they made bell bottoms in leather. I guess from your motorcycle riding. But here's the thing. Like, I enjoyed this just because, yeah, it was a fun, nostalgic trip back to the 70s. But watching this, I'm thinking, okay, where's like the high tech spy type stuff? And it's like, let's go through a flower bouquet to see if it's bugged. And we're going to screw the headset off of a phone. Maybe that was really cool in the 70s to see that kind of stuff. I guess I was expecting a little bit more. This doesn't seem... Marjorie, talk about women doing more than just cooking and wearing pearls. I'm going to say you got to let this one bake a little bit more. Watching this pilot, I don't know if I'm coming back to watch the TV series. It, it was kind of fun, but it didn't sell me on the concept. I, I would want to see that more refined, and I just don't think it's refined here. So maybe the television show is better. I, I'm going to guess it is better than this because it lasted for five seasons. That's a successful television show. I'm going to say skip the movie of the week. It, it's a week not recommend. See, I'm in this exact same boat. This TV movie is not great, and watching it, I don't know that I would tune back in either. And while this isn't a positive, it would have been in the 70s. I don't even feel the women were exploited enough. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't have the jiggle that would become the series trademark. <laughs> and it doesn't have enough cohesion to make it a great mystery like Columbo. Well, yeah, it's not fiercely feminist enough to be women's live. And it's not jiggly enough to be exploitation. Yeah, exactly. So I'm a little bit caught there. But I hate to damn this because... Damning this would be like damning the whole series, and this is where it started from, and I do think the series is worth a revisit. I didn't just watch the pilot. I went back and watched a handful of episodes from the seasons, and they're all better than this. It also helps that they're all shorter than this, but you get much more involved plots, situations where an angel will get kidnapped, but then she'll rescue herself and another kidnap victim. I mean, it's just... It got to be a really good show and a fun show. It's a 70s show, and if you don't like episodic 70s television where nothing from the previous episode matters on the next one, there's no character growth, you know, it's just mystery of the week type stuff. But I like the series, but this pilot is not a good representation of the series. As the, a sampler for the series, I think we could have put our hand in a hat and pulled out any episode to review instead of the pilot and found a better mystery. The show was good, even if this couldn't be saved by Diana Muldar. And Tommy Lee Jones is worth seeing before he was as craggly. <laughs> no, he was still craggly. It's like he was born looking like an old man. That standard death helps him out, though. It, it was hard <laughs> to see those pox scars on his face. If you do watch the series, I got into a Blu-ray forum. The series is coming out on Blu-ray. Just in time for the 2019 movie? Yes, exactly. And no bonus features. But people were complaining because when they watch this on MeTV, what have you, it's in the television-wide 16 by 9 format. And the Blu-ray coming out is in the original aspect ratio of 4 by 3 and somebody posted a screenshot as to why you never want to watch the 16 by 9s. One thing this show became famous, or shall I say infamous for, is the amount of nipples protruding under the shirt. It was around the time this show began that the brawless women's movement began, and Farrah Fawcett was more than happy to take off that bra. Nipples are scary. Yeah, I, I noticed her's poking out when she's a hillbilly. <laughs> if you look at comparison shots, in the 16 by 9 they always crop out the nipples in the standard four <laughs> by three. Lots of nips. So and these are clothed nips, though. Like it's not even nudity, but I guess if you're that hardcore to nips, <laughs> get that Blu-ray where they're not cut off. And they even make these like little pedal things you can put over your nipples so you don't offend people with your nipples. I'm not offended. Well, apparently nipples are frightening and scary to some people. Standards and practices did come down on this show and say, I don't care what you do, but you can't have those nipples there anymore. It's kind of like, remember, we talked about Batman and Burt Ward's package was offensive, <laughs> so they had to tape him down. But as you mentioned, Jacob, this show went through a lot of cast changes. Farrah Fawcett 
had signed a five-year contract, all the girls did, and Farah left after one season, and it was scandalous. Spelling sued her. They tried to blacklist her out of Hollywood, and it became a major fight. They finally agreed, because nobody was going to win this fight, that Farah could leave, but she had to agree to return for six guest episodes. So there were three in season three and three in season four where Farah came back. But for as iconic as Farah is and became and as tied to the show as she is, people don't even remember. People think Farrah Fawcett was on the show for a long time, but she was only there for that first season. Yeah, I read the new ones. It was like her sister or something. So it wasn't the same character. It's kind of like what they did with Chrissy in Three's Company when she left. It's so much like Three's Company that I can't even believe it. I, what is it with these 70 shows not able to keep their blonde superstars? Suzanne Summers quit because she wanted more money and was trying to play hardball, and then they did bring her back for a couple more episodes, too, later on in the seasons, whereas here, they offered Farrah Fawcett a ton more money. She wouldn't stay. If you believe the behind-the-scenes rumors, it's because $6 million man Lee Majors, her husband, was not very happy with her being gone so much filming the show. He wanted a stay-at-home wife. In the kitchen with the pearls. Mm-hmm. He claims he never was upset that she wasn't there to cook him dinner, and he didn't want a hot dinner when he came home from $6 million man, but rumors suggest otherwise that that marriage wouldn't make it anyway. She became Farrah Fawcett again. But yes, she was replaced by Cheryl Ladd, who became pretty famous for the show. She was accepted. The ratings stayed high. She was Jill's younger sister, Chris. And you gotta love Cheryl Ladd because she knew what she was getting into. Her first day on the set, she came onto the set with a screen-printed shirt that said Farrah Fawcett Minor. <laughs> Who would have thought, though, the glue that keeps this show together would be Kate Jackson? I mean, admittedly, she's the one I most associate with the show. Even though Cheryl Ladd stayed the whole five years, it's Kate Jackson that was the face of the show in my memory. But she left after season three when the show had already been slipping to CBS, who was unstoppable with the Jeffersons in one day at a time. <laughs> the Angels just can't stand up to Wheezy. And without Kate Jackson, season four, the show dropped into 17th at the ratings. Season five, ABC had no confidence in the show. It was delayed. There was an actor's strike. And then they just kept shifting its time slots till it died a inglamorous death. But believe it or not, that was not the end of The Angels. And I'm not even talking about the 2000 movie. Uh, are we going to have to do some like Hungarian version now? First, they tried to bring this back for a show called Angels 88, where they had four angels cast and ready. One of them, Taya Leone. Oh, I like her. It was delayed, and then they were renamed it to Angels 89. <laughs> Not the same ring. <laughs> no, Angels 88, better. And then it just got abandoned. And then from 1998 to 1999, there is an unofficial angel show called Angelus. <laughs> That aired on Telemundo. <laughs> I don't speak Spanish. I'm not going to be able to watch it. Sorry. Hispanic viewers didn't like the hour-long procedural that was once a week. They liked their nightly telenovelas. Oh, those novellas are amazing. I don't speak Spanish, but I will watch a telenovela. <laughs> they are fantastic. So Angelus didn't quite make it. And then I'll just talk about it now since we're talking about the TV version. In 2002, a show called Wilde Engel appeared on German television, <laughs> known as Angus de Choc in French-speaking countries. Does that mean Chuck's Angels? Oh. <laughs> yes, Angel Angus de Choc. The Angels of Chuck, okay, <laughs> I, I'm down. But none of those caught on. What we're going to be talking about in two weeks is the feature film, Charlie's Angels, where... None of the original angels are back, but we have Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, Lucy Liu, and Bill Murray. How disappointing that they didn't have any cameos by the original cast, right? Kate Jackson was offered one. She'd only agree to act if she was given the main role of the older bad person. Oh, well, fair enough. Okay. Sister's got to watch out for herself. Good job on you, Kate. But we'll be getting to that in two weeks because... There's a movie opening this Friday that we'll be reviewing next week. Jacob, UI, and Brock will be here as we break out our red headbands and lace up our shoes for Rambo Last Blood. Oh, I thought this was like Home Alone, but the grown-up version. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are we sure it's the last one? I know it's called Last Blood, but I mean, we're it's definitively the last one. 
It might be Stallone's last one. I can't imagine he's got much more in him. Trailer looks good. What can I say? I like Old Town Road, at least. Then we'll be back in two weeks to discuss the 2000 theatrical movie, Charlie's Angels. Also out this Friday, not just Rambo Last Blood, but our fall winter donation drive is beginning. And if you haven't seen our posts, we'll tell you what it is right now. Silver Level begins this Friday, where we're going to be looking at five tales of post-apocalyptic survivors. We're leading up to Zombieland Double Tap. I can't believe it's taken 10 years to get this sequel. But there's only two of those, so we gotta do a few more. We're doing some Last Man on Earth, Surviving the Apocalypse. There are three movies based on the Richard Matheson novel, I Am Legend. The most famous of which is 2007's Will Smith movie called I Am Legend. That was another huge hit, but what people may not remember was the first adaptation of that movie came out in the 60s, a black and white film starring Vincent Price. We're now playing. We reviewed Frank Sinatra and The Detective before we did Die Hard. (laughs) We did Think from Another World before John Carpenter's The Thing. So yes, we're going to this black and white 60s film starring Vincent Price as the last man on Earth, hunted by zombie vampire things. Yeah, and in between Price and Will Smith, we have another acting legend, Charlton Heston in The Omega Man, the 70s version of this story. Which I think is a lot more famous than Vincent Price's. Yes. (laughs) So that is our silver level. And then gold level, we're doing something we kind of feel like it's now or never because a reboot is coming and we aren't sure. Maybe. It's scheduled. Yeah. We aren't sure, A, if it'll keep its release date or B, how much people want this franchise rebooted. But it is classic horror, The Grudge. And it's going to give us our first chance to review some J-horror with the Yuan foreign films that inspired The Grudge. Yeah, I'm excited for that. You know, I remember The Ring getting me into J-horror, and I know The Grudge, I think, was the next big export after that. And yeah, so I'm excited to do some J-horror. It's the kind of horror that I was into before I watched Slashers or any of that other kind of stuff. So exciting for me. And I remember really liking the concept of J-horror when The Ring was big and The Grudge and all of that in the early 2000s, around the time of the Charlie's Angels films, but I've never watched the Japanese originals. And this is a grand bargain, folks. We're going to be doing 12 podcasts on The Grudge. So you're getting a total of 17 podcasts, I Am Legend, Zombieland, and all The Grudge podcasts for $25. 17 shows. Now, We're going to be releasing some of these grudge shows two a week. The Japanese films, in many cases, barely run over an hour. We think those conversations might be a little shorter, but still, 12 podcasts, four U.S. films leading up to January's Grudge 2020, plus eight Japanese films and the original Grudge trilogy with Sarah Michelle Gellar in one and a tenth of them. (laughs) And then Platinum, I'm excited about too. You know, with The Grudge, we have Japan and then the U.S. East meets West with the remakes there. And so we've done a lot of buddy cop stuff, I feel, this year with all those Lethal Weapon films. East meets West, buddy cops, Rush Hour. We've only talked about Jackie Chan once with The Karate Kid. I'm excited to do more of what he's known for. Yeah, I, I am too. I've seen all the Rush Hour films in theaters and... It comes out at a good time. We're going to be doing that after The Grudge 2020, starting it the same week, Bad Boys 3, Bad Boys for Life hits theaters. Yeah, more buddy cops. So all of that coming this fall. You can find the details and pledge at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate and join us for The Last Man on Earth this Friday. Okay, so do you guys want some Charlie's Angels trivia real quick before we wrap this up? Yeah. So in addition to being groundbreaking... For what it was, Jacqueline Smith was the first celebrity to have a line of products like what we see now because she had a line of home goods with Kmart. Oh. The original Martha Stewart. Yep. Jacqueline Smith home collection with Kmart. They were trying to class it up a little bit. And I think it was there for a long time until, you're right, Martha moved in. Cheryl Ladd also then followed in her footsteps and had a line of clothing at Sears. Things that do not exist anymore. Kmart and Sears. Yes. <laughs> So she was the softer side of Sears. Yes. Actually, it was before they tried to do that rebranding. But in the 80s, she had a line of clothing at Sears. So Jacob, Jacob Marjorie, thank you for joining me. And until next week, all the angels are going to heaven. Well done.
done, angels. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Charlie. It's been a pleasure. I hope to work with you ladies again, but not too soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing. Outstanding angels. If you enjoyed this show, you can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Charlie, I've really enjoyed working on this assignment. (laughs) And I eagerly anticipate returning to work. Want to hear more reviews like this one? You can find hundreds of other movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Isn't it amazing how much information you can learn off of the internet? In our archives section are over 800 reviews. Listen to our hosts discuss horror, sci-fi, comedy, action, drama, and more. How'd that feel? Because it looked like it felt really good. That felt nice. Plus, you can hear reviews of every movie based on Marvel or DC Comics. You know how superheroes have these secret identities? You're an action star. I get a lot of action. A new, totally free movie review podcast is posted every Tuesday. So come back each week for another new show. Daddy, I wish you could watch us work. You'd be so proud. I mean, you can't even imagine the positions to get ourselves into. <laughs> when I get back, I'm going to give you a full blow by blow. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. Sabrina, why can't I ever come out ahead of the bank? <laughs> I think you have to put in more than you take out. Ah, is that the trick? Well, it helps. You can support Now Playing by joining our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. Backers can get early access to reviews, unedited reviews, exclusive shows not available anywhere else, and more. Details are at nowplayingpatron.com. You know, I signed that release waiver, so you can just feel free to stick things in my slot. At our Podbean site, you can also support the show by listening to any of our donation shows. Series like Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Phantasm, Jaws, and others are available for a small, one-time contribution. I just got so excited. When it's big like that, I just love to ride it hard and rough. The way I was getting pounded, I'm going to be wet for hours. You can also donate to us directly on PayPal. Details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I got to say, Helen, I've never wanted you more. Always wanting what you can't have. Want 375 more Now Playing reviews? Get the Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Arnie, Stewart, Jacob, and Marjorie reviewed 125 different movies, each getting three recommends or not recommends. The ebook is available now, and the print book will be shipping soon. Find details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. I see my brother ain't checked the books in quite a while, huh? We have a book? You can also follow Now Playing on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube for original video content. I have something you'll never have. What's that? Friends. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I'm sorry, friend of Starfish, but there's only one captain of this love boat. That captain is me. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Hey, I like that guy. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Don't worry, he's going to wake up. Unless he doesn't. Now Playing credits read by Brock. I can't tell you how many hours I've spent lying in bed trying to put a face and a body on that voice. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. He said what? Over my dead body. I can accept those terms. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. You're very good with your hands. I could use someone like you on my staff. Thanks for the offer, but my hands aren't going anywhere near your staff. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. You crazy bastard! I think you mean crazy bitch. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of, and may not be used without the express written permission of, Venganza Media Incorporated. Samuel stuff. 
Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. And that's kicking your ass. funny your wife and myself have the same reaction to oh we're watching a pilot oh which one (laughs) maybe we need to start a wives of now playing podcast (laughs) what do you have to watch this week oh my god you won't believe it yes (laughs) yes that could be a whole spinoff of the show (laughs) true story it really annoyed me as a child and still to this day when the character actors would appear in different TV shows. You know what annoyed me, and it still does to this day, is when the same character actor would appear on the same TV show. In a different character! Yes. That annoyed me! That happened at Designing <laughs> Women, and I'm still mad about that. Oh boy, we got some Designing Women thoughts on this show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even looking it up, Diana Muldar did that several times on old series. Why are you obsessed with this woman? <laughs> She was two different characters on Hawaii Five O. We're talking about something with Farrah Fawcett, and he's all into Diana Muldar. <laughs> what the hell? Don't you need to like find a convention where she's appearing so you can take care of this? I was just gonna ask that. Yeah, go get that autograph. <laughs> yeah, I mean, God, get Diane out of your system. <laughs> what is going on with you? I was a Trekkie. But it doesn't sound like she was on that much Trek. You're obsessed with this woman's career. She even played two different characters in Star Trek. One in the old series, one in the next generation. Oh, never bring her up again. (laughs) I don't want to hear her name the rest of the podcast. You can use her character's name, but I don't want to hear about this woman ever again. (laughs) You never watched LA Law, did you? No! (laughs) Sorry, there's a little violet, but you've asked me that before, and it's still the same answer. Oh, what's his name? Wood. Woodridge. Woodwright. Woods, <laughs> Woodville. That's the problem. Woodville. Woodville. The show was good, even if this couldn't be saved by Diana Muldar. So. Oh my God. <laughs> you mentioned her. <sighs> Something to bring up in your next couples therapy session. <laughs> So it's funny you mentioned that about the nipples, because do you know, another TV show also came under fire because of nipples. Can you guess what TV show it was? It was a modern show. Friends? Yes. Yeah, I remember those nipples. Yeah. Okay. All right. Then that's... Was Diana Mulder on that show? (laughs) No, not that I recall. But yeah, I mean... (laughs) 